you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, that's page 980 in the black pew Bibles in front of you. Philippians chapter 1. There's a man named Richard Baxter who was a Puritan who lived in the 1600s. He wrote this book. It's called The Reformed Pastor. He wrote a lot of other books too. This is uh, one of my favorite books of all time. If you're considering going into ministry at all in leadership, definitely um, highly recommend this book. He was born in England in 1615. He was a brilliant student and a He mastered books of theology while he was a teenager. He was ordained into the Anglican ministry in 1638. He was a gifted intellectual, but he also had a pastor's heart for souls, which led to an almost complete conversion of his 600-member congregation and social transformation of his town. On Sundays, he reported, you might hear a hundred families singing psalms and repeating sermons as you passed through town. His impassioned and eloquent preaching was so popular that galleries had to be added to his church to accommodate all those who came to worship. The congregation reached out to the community. He said, day and night they thirsted after the salvation of their neighbors. After spending some years in the army, he began to write prolifically. He authored over 160 books, including a paraphrase of the New Testament, a metrical version of the Psalms, and two volumes of poetry. His book, The Saints' Everlasting Rest, was among the most widely read English books of the 17th century. He had a heart like Christ for Christian unity. In his efforts to unite Protestant Christians on essential gospel truths met with some success, He founded an association to to unify uh, fellow believers. Uh, He made great strides in in quelling theological disputes among believers and unifying Christians from varying viewpoints. But a man who seeks to draw people in is often misunderstood and even hated by those who seek to shut them out. Now, Baxter was not perfect. We would disagree with him on some pretty significant theological viewpoints, but As a Puritan within the Church of England, he ran into trouble with the Anglican hierarchy when Charles II came to the throne and made him one of his chaplains. There's this thing called the Act of Uniformity in 1662, which required all ministers to give unfeigned consent to the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Baxter refused to do so and was thus expelled from his church along with 2,000 other Puritans. In 1685, he was falsely accused of libel against the church, fined a large sum, and imprisoned for six months. When released, though he was 70 years old and ill, he plunged back into the ministry. Baxter had always preached, as he said, as never sure to preach again, and as a dying man to dying men. He delivered his final sermon with as much compassionate fire as his first And on the completion of his last sermon, he made his way home to bed. There in the company of his beloved friends, he spent his final hours. He told his bedside companions, I bless God, I have a well-grounded assurance of my eternal happiness and great peace and comfort within. He died December 8th, 1691. But before he died... His friends who were with him reminded him 
of the great encouragement and comfort his books had been to countless others. And this is how Baxter responded to that uh, encouragement on his deathbed. This is what he said. I was but a pen in the hand of God. What praise is due a pen? I was but a pen in the hand of God. What praise is due a pen? Does that mindset sound familiar? Look down at Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Remember from a couple weeks ago, that word servants is the same word for slaves or bond servants. If we, if we don't understand that this letter is being written with that kind of mentality, most of this letter of Philippians will not make any sense. Another way of saying this, that the servant's mindset is what Richard Baxter said, I was but a pen in the hand of God. Today we're going to see how this God-centered mentality worked itself out in how Paul viewed his imprisonment for the gospel. We're going to see how Paul's suffering led to the progress of the gospel and the strengthening of the church. Those are my two points. Paul's suffering, his imprisonment, led to the advance, the progress of the gospel, and to the strengthening of the church. But church, we will never view our lives rightly if we don't first understand that our lives do not belong to us. We belong to Christ. Even if we think we are in control, we're not. Unless we start seeing ourselves primarily as servants, slaves of Christ, we will repeatedly find ourselves in situations where we are discontent with our circumstances, frustrated with the people around us, and joyless. Are you discontent? with your circumstances? Do you just always find yourself in situations where you, you just don't like where you are in life? Are you easily and often frustrated with people around you because they get in your way? Is your life regularly lacking joy and excitement about the things of God? If so, then today's message is for you. If our joy and contentment in Christ only comes when things are going our way, then it's only a matter of time before our joy disappears. Because if you're not currently facing a trial of some kind, it's just a matter of time. And if our joy is contingent upon our circumstances, then our joy will come and it will go. Students that are here today, we are so glad you're here. We want you to feel welcomed and cared for here. It is our hope, unashamedly, that you would make Redeemer Church your home while you're here for school. There are people here that will love you, invest in your lives. There are places for, for you to get plugged in and serve and grow and in your love and commitment to Christ. Because college can easily be a time where students tend to only live for themselves. I'm not saying that's you. I know it was for me at times in college. You're here pursuing a degree so you can get a job that pays you well and gives you a chance at a good future. It's so easy to spend most of your time thinking about yourself, your future, your desires, your friends, how you're gonna spend your weekends, pass your classes, and accomplish your goals. And none of that is inherently wrong. But it's very possible 
for you to spend the next two to six years, eight years, ten years, I don't know. I don't know what your degree is. Pursuing everything you want in life, all the while neglecting to develop a life of service to Christ and his people. So today's proposition is this. Because we belong to God, we can be sure there is gospel purpose in our suffering. Because we belong to God, we can be sure there is gospel purpose in our suffering. And I'm going to use a lot of different words than suffering. I'm going to use trials, hardship, persecution, suffering. It's all under the same umbrella. Any kind of difficult circumstance we go through, because we belong to God, we can be certain there is gospel purpose for it. We're going to see two purposes. There's a hundred purposes God has for any hardship in your life. We're going to see two today that Paul mentions. Let's read starting in verse 12. We're going to read 12 through uh, 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that... I rejoice. First, we see Paul's suffering leads to the progress of the gospel. Look again at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Just look at Paul's mentality. His imprisonment, the fact that he is wrongly in prison, not prison today, which is terrible, prison 2,000 years ago, which is 2,000 times more terrible probably than prison today, but he, his imprisonment has served to advance the gospel. Now, what kind of view of his life does Paul need to have for that to be his response to his imprisonment? Think about that. How would that sentence change if you were in Paul's place? You want to know how I would rewrite that sentence if I was writing this letter? Here's what, it, here's what I would write. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me is totally unfair. Here's 10 reasons why I'm innocent and should not be in prison. Now get me out of here. That's, what I, that's a letter I would write. That's probably how I would react. No joy, no gospel perspective, no recognition of what God might be doing through my experience. Just my own self-justification. How many of us would react that way if we were in Paul's position? But how does Paul react? Brothers, look at what good 
is coming from this. There's that slave of Christ mentality. Look at what God is doing. Look at how his purposes are being fulfilled. Me? I'm just a pen. Just a pen in the hand of God. I'm in prison. So what? The gospel is advancing. See, Paul saw himself as put in prison for God's purpose of spreading the gospel to those around him. Now, who were those around him? Well, he mentions the whole imperial guard and all the rest. This has huge application for us today. At this point in Paul's life, he's probably in prison in Rome. And who was Paul's evangelistic focus? Was it the people in Corinth? People in Galatia or Thessalonica? No. It was the people he had direct access to right then and there. Doesn't mean he was unconcerned for the salvation of other people in other places. He's writing a letter to the Philippians, after all. He's concerned about believers all over, as is, he should be. But when it comes to his primary evangelistic focus, he does the only thing he can do And he tells the people closest to him about Christ. The whole imperial guard and all the rest. People that are over him. People who have him in chains. It doesn't matter. Let's tell them about Jesus. This seems like an unnecessary thing to say probably, but it is important for a couple reasons. Every one of us is called to speak the gospel to the people who are already in our lives. Church, if you're waiting until you get to Kazakhstan or China or India or Bangladesh to all of a sudden start telling people about Jesus, you won't. You won't. This helps us recognize just how self-focused most of us probably are. Is this your mentality about the people you see every day? Are you praying for them regularly? Do you see them as lost and blind and hopeless without Christ? Are you moved with compassion for them? If we are not faithful to tell the people closest to us about Christ, why would we ever think we would tell someone across the world about him? If we are unwilling to walk across the street and start developing a relationship with our neighbors for the sake of the gospel, then we will make terrible missionaries. Paul, well, who do I got around me? There's a guard right here. There's a guard outside my, if he's under house arrest, there's a guard outside my house. Stand before, you know, judges and, and Roman counselors and, and kings. I'll just tell them about Jesus, right? Whoever is in front of them. That's it. Who is in front of you? In your classes. In your apartment. Your roommates. Dorm mates. Fraternity brothers. Sisters. Sorority sisters. Probably don't have any fraternity sisters. Do you believe you are there for Christ? Paul saw his prison sentence as for Christ. That's what he says. My imprisonment is for Christ. 
Do you see your job as a job for Christ? Whew, that's hard sometimes, right? It's so easy just to show up, put your head down, get through the day, get on to what I really want to do, stuff at home, right? You're there for Christ. Do you see your current role as a stay-at-home mom as for Christ? You're there for Christ. Do you see your current situation as a student as for Christ? Church, we must start seeing our lives as ordered and purposed by God for Christ. If Paul can do it in prison, (laughs) we can do it anywhere. One more question about this point. How do you view those who make your life difficult? Might even call them your enemies. Paul shared the gospel with those who were in charge of his imprisonment. And why wouldn't he? Do you remember who Paul was before coming to Christ? One of the chief persecutors of the church. You think he looked at the Roman guards and authorities as people who were too lost for God to save? Was their sin too terrible for God to forgive? (laughs) Absolutely not. He knew himself as the chief of sinners. He arrested and probably had a hand in the, the murder of Christians before God saved him on the road to Damascus. Why would he look at these Roman soldiers and guards and and authorities as those who were too far from being saved, too far from the grace of God? This should give us great encouragement today as well. Some of you might struggle to talk to people about Christ because you simply cannot imagine how God could actually change that person's heart, right? I have people like that in my life. When I look at them, I'm like, I'm not going to waste my time, right? I'm, I'm going to be just, just like talking to a wall. Surely God isn't really concerned with them or couldn't move in them or like they're just so far gone. How could God actually save your Muslim neighbor or roommate or that undisciplined child that lives across the street or that neighbor who's always drinking beer with his buddies outside his garage or that atheist professor or classmates? I mean, do you actually believe God cares about that person and has the power to bring about heart transformation? Paul thought so because he himself knew He was the chief of sinners, and he knew God had saved him. The fact that your heart has been changed, your heart has been changed, is no less a miracle than anyone else. And when we forget, this is is the problem with this kind of thinking, when we forget how wicked our own hearts are and how much grace we have received, the sins of others will seem worse than ours and the power of God will seem very small to us. Church, the gospel is the power of salvation to anyone who believes. Let's remember that God has ordered our lives right now, this very day, so that we would faithfully speak words of life to those he's placed around us. Who are you around? 
Let's be faithful to speak words of life to those right in front of us. So we see that Paul's suffering leads to the progress of the gospel. His suffering, he's in prison, doesn't matter. The progress of the gospel still happens. He just tells it to people he's, he, he's already with. But we also see that Paul's suffering leads to the strengthening of the church. Look again at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, is this confusing to you? Because <laughs> it is to me. Again, I, I automatically put myself in Paul's situation here. That's what I do all the time when I read scripture. I'm like, okay, what would I think here? What would I be saying if I was in his, his place? But doesn't this seem backwards to you? If one of us in this room, someone that, that, we, that we know, someone who's been a member here for a long time, if, if that person were arrested today for telling other people about Christ, how would that affect you? <laughs> would you be, quote, more bold to speak the word without fear? <laughs> I don't think I would, Right? That's the whole point of the arrest, right? From a worldly perspective. What's going through the minds of the authorities when they arrested Paul? They were thinking, we're gonna shut this down. This guy's stirring up trouble. He's causing problems. He's upsetting our systems of authority and, and economy. Whatever it was, the point was, we've got to get rid of this guy, shut him down, whatever it is he's trying to do. I'm weak. I'm gonna see that and be like, I can, I can keep my mouth shut for a little bit, right? I don't want to end up like Paul. He's crazy anyway, right? But Paul says that somehow his imprisonment has actually had the opposite effect. People are now more bold to speak the truth without fear. Now, why? How does that happen? First, it happens by the work of the Spirit in the life of those believers. We see that at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes. They're hiding in a room. <laughs> they don't know what to do. They don't want to get arrested. The Holy Spirit comes, fills, fills the apostles. What do they do? They run outside and immediately start proclaiming the gospel. In, in languages that they don't even know, many people come to faith. That's automatically what happens when the Spirit of God begins working in your heart. You don't care about the consequences. You don't care about how stupid and foolish you might look to everyone else. You just want other people to know this truth. But we have to realize that this is exactly what has happened throughout all of church history. The more persecution Christians face, the more the church is strengthened and encouraged. This has always been the case. But why? How does this happen? What is it about persecution and suffering or trial or hardship that results in the strengthening of the church? Well, here's four reasons. I'm gonna, there's, there's a lot more probably, but here's four that I just came to my mind as I was thinking about this this week. Why does persecution lead to the strengthening and expansion of God's people? First, persecution forces Christians many times to physically relocate. We saw this already up in our first point because Paul, he's, he's just telling the God, he's, he's getting shipped all over the place, he's in prison, he's just telling the gospel to everybody that he sees, right? All these different cities he's going to, all these different places. 
but it happens on a bigger scale when there's mass persecution. Here's a direct example from Scripture. This is from Acts chapter 8. It says this, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all, what? Scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That's what persecution does. Persecution gets God's people out of their pews, out of their church buildings, and into the nations. Sends them all over the world. They run away, right? They don't, they don't want to get arrested. They don't want to get killed. So they leave. That's good. Because when they, when they go, they take the message of Christ with them. So first, it force, persecution forces Christians to relocate. Second, persecution and suffering weeds out false believers. When hard times come, those who truly belong to Jesus will persevere, and those who don't, won't. This will result in a leaner, stronger church. This happens all throughout church history as well. I think it's happening in our, in our nation right now. When, when hard times come for Christians, those who aren't really converted, those who don't really have a rooted, grounded faith, up and leave. This results in a, lean, in a leaner, stronger church. So second, persecution and suffering weeds out false believers. If you have come to Christ thinking that your life, that he's gonna give you a great life, a better life, an easier life, you're not gonna last, brother, sister. He will give you joy. He'll give you contentment. Your life will not get easier when you come to Christ. You will face persecution and trial and hardship. And when it comes, it will test your faith. Third, true Christians dig down deeper into the foundation of God's word when suffering comes. So people who truly belong to Christ will face persecution and suffering very differently than those who don't. Followers of Christ will turn more and more to God's word for strength, comfort, and wisdom. And this results in an even greater dependence and hope in, in God. In this way, persecution actually results in a stronger faith. Those who belong to Christ will seek Christ more, seek answers from God's word more when suffering and trials come. And last, fourth, True gospel communities will be established in the midst of persecution. This happens even today, all over the world, in places where Christians are not free to meet openly. What do they do? They just not meet? It's like, okay, I guess we won't meet. No. They meet secretly, right? Communities meet underground, hidden, because that's what gospel communities do. That's what the gospel does. What happens when a bunch of believers start seeking Christ more and finding their hope in him in the midst of suffering, 
They start to form communities where they can love and serve one another and live out their faith with excitement and joy. So if these four things are happening in the life of believers who are suffering, it's no wonder that Paul says the brothers are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is how God uses persecution and suffering to accomplish exactly what the persecution is meant to destroy. This is how God works. He takes the actions of sinful men, terrible things, the killings, the beating, the torture of his followers, and he uses it to accomplish his good purposes. He flips the tables over and over. This is our great God. We don't have to be afraid of persecution, brothers and sisters. We don't have to be afraid to suffer, to face trial. This doesn't only apply to persecution. This same principle applies to any difficult situation we might be facing. And this is key. Because if you're sitting there thinking, okay, this is great, Caleb. I'm not being persecuted for my faith. So what you're just telling me is, doesn't really apply to me. But what we might be, what we might consider a disaster in our lives or chaos or a major setback, God often uses to bring even more attention to himself and drive his people to greater dependence upon him. This reminds us that what we might consider setbacks, God uses to advance his purposes. This is such good news for us. God's ways are not our ways. He almost never does things the way we would do them or expect him to do them. We can never look at our external circumstances and assume that we know exactly what God is doing. We don't. There's no way for us to know with absolute certainty what God is doing. We must anchor ourselves in the promises of his word and let those promises determine the outlook of our lives. We can't be tossed to and fro by our external circumstances. But what's the flip side of this? If what we're seeing is true, then the flip side to this must also be recognized, which is this. I want to be careful here. I want to make some some caveats after I say this, but comfort and ease and affluence Worldly prosperity are oftentimes, oftentimes, the enemies of gospel advancement. One commentator says it this way. He's talking about the same principle. He says this, the lesson is not just that God is sovereign and turns setbacks to triumphs. The lesson is that comfort and ease and prosperity and safety and freedom often cause a tremendous inertia in the church. Inertia is the tendency of something that is standing still to stay standing still and of something moving to keep moving. The very things that we think would produce personnel and energy and creative investment of time and money in the cause of Christ and his kingdom instead often produce the exact opposite. 
weakness and apathy, self-centeredness and preoccupation with security. It's true from Jesus' parable of the four soils that some fall away during persecution because they have no root. But it seems to be true that even more people are like the third soil, the cares of the world and the delight in riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So yes, persecution will drive some people away. But what drives more Christians away from the faith or supposed Christians? It's not persecution. It's worldly prosperity. Persecution can have harmful effects on the church, but prosperity, it seems, is even more devastating to the mission to which God calls us. Now, that doesn't mean we should seek persecution. That would be presumption. The point is that we should be very wary of prosperity and excessive ease and comfort and affluence, and we should not be disheartened but filled with hope if we are persecuted or if we suffer for righteousness' sake. That fills me with great hope today, church. God makes persecution serve the mission of the church. Those are my two points. Everything else is conclusion. Today we've seen how Paul's suffering served to advance the gospel and strengthen the church. Two purposes that God has in Paul's suffering. These are just two examples of how God used Paul's suffering to accomplish his purpose. If God was able to use Paul's imprisonment for his glory, he can certainly do the same for any trial you might be facing. The fact is, God is doing a hundred different things in our suffering that we don't see and will probably never see in this life. But you might be wondering... What other purposes does God have for me when times are hard? James 1, 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is just another purpose God has in our trials. He's not just accomplishing his mission of gospel advancement. He's also refining you, changing your heart so that you would turn to him for strength and hope. God is less concerned with your comfort, physical comfort, than with your joy in him. To say it positively, God is more concerned that you learn to be happy in him than he is with making your life easy. He has designed the world so that the greatest growth we can experience almost always happens in the crucible of suffering. A dear friend of mine texted me this verse this week. He didn't know I was going to be preaching on these things. He texted me this verse from Proverbs 17.3. The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. If you're going through a trial, 
One of the purposes God has in that trial is to refine your heart like gold, to turn up the heat in your life, to remove the dross and impurities that exist in us all and force you to lean on him. And church, that is God's grace to us. That is not cruel or manipulating. It is the way God has designed the entire universe. It is God's grace to you that he places you in situations to test your faith, force you to reach outside of yourself for help. If we don't have this kind of perspective on our lives, we are destined to a life of disappointment, anger, frustration. This is where I want to end, which is where I started. Back to seeing ourselves as slaves of Christ. We've seen today that God is fulfilling his gospel purposes in us, even in our suffering and trials. He uses our circumstances and our suffering to advance the gospel, to strengthen the church. He uses our circumstances to refine us and causes our faith to deepen in the soil of adversity. But the question is, how do we get the eyes to see this and believe it? Because I'm sure we all believe it sitting right here, right? Yes, we're on board. But when the trial comes tomorrow at work or in two weeks when you're faced with um, extreme anxiety, will, you, will it be so easy to believe then? We must come to see ourselves as Paul saw himself, a slave of Christ, or as Richard Baxter said, a pen in the hand of God. If we don't, we will never be able to find the good that God is doing, even in our suffering. But some of you might be sitting there saying, okay, I get it. I must see myself as a servant of Christ, a slave of, of Christ, someone to be used however God wants. I know I should do that, but I don't. I know I should, but there's still so much I want in this life, so much I'm trying to control. I have so much fear in trusting God with my life. If that's you, and all this sounds really good, but you know that, ah, I don't know if I can do this, just know this, you're in the right place. Because the guy standing here on stage is just like you. This church is full of people who are just like you. You're not alone in that. No one is here. No one has perfected this. This is something, maintaining this gospel-centered, God-centered perspective is the challenge of the Christian life. But here's two answers to your question. I'm gonna end with these. How do we get there? How do we develop the servant mindset that Paul so clearly exemplifies in this letter? How do we see ourselves how can we start to see ourselves as a pen in the hand of God? First, so what we have to do, admit it's impossible for us to do. The first step is admitting you can't do it. You can't do it. You don't have the power to change your heart. You can change your behavior. People do that all the time, at least for, for, for some time. But you cannot force your heart to believe something different all by yourself. It takes a supernatural work of God to bring about this kind of eternal perspective. It doesn't happen all at once. 
It takes a lifetime of growing in Christ through trials that brings about this perspective. So the first answer to the question of how do I get this perspective is you can't. You can't do it. So stop trying. The second answer is stop looking to yourself for change and look to Christ. You can't do it yourself, but Christ can do it in you. I've talked a lot today about developing a right mindset about suffering. I've talked a lot about faithfully sharing the gospel with those around us, about how we often fail in both of these things. So it's very possible that we could walk out of here feeling defeated or hopeless because we only see ourselves as failing Christians. Or, what would probably be even worse, is that we could all walk out of here really excited and motivated to start doing a whole bunch of good things for all the wrong reasons and in our own power. So, let me end by reminding us all of the linchpin that holds all of this together and keeps us from running from one extreme to the other. If you struggle to believe that God can accomplish and is accomplishing good through your difficult circumstances, consider this, the greatest good that God ever accomplished for you was accomplished at the same time that the greatest evil was taking place. God took the most heinous, most despicable act in human history, the crucifixion of his son, and he used it to accomplish the greatest good. The murder of Jesus Christ on the cross was at the same time the most terrible atrocity ever committed and the very means God used to redeem his people that redemption can be yours today. If you're here, you do not know for sure that you are a child of God, then I encourage you to cast yourself at the mercy of God. There is no amount of good works you can do to atone for your sins. You can leave here and you can do everything that I said. Share the gospel with, with 10,000 people. Pray every day. Read the Bible every day. You will never atone for one sin that you have committed. You can't do it. But Christ has atoned for you. This is what I mean when I say, look to Christ. He is the one who fulfills all of this for us anyway. Your only hope, my only hope, is sheer mercy. When Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago, he lived a perfect life that you cannot live. When he was killed, he took your sin on himself so that anyone who turns from their sin and calls upon him for salvation will find it. If that's you here today, I encourage you, call upon the Lord and you will be saved. Stop trusting in your good works, thinking that you will somehow outweigh the bad things you have done. You cannot. Your only hope is to go to him and say, I have no hope. I just need mercy. Please be merciful to me, a sinner. 
That's where we have to be. But if you're here and you are confident that you are a child of God, the answer is the same for you. We must also regularly turn our eyes upon Jesus. Church, we become, we say this all the time here, we become what we behold. What you look at is what you will become. What you spend your time, what you fill your mind with, you will become like that thing, whatever it is. If you're struggling to maintain a servant perspective, if you're struggling to see yourself as a pen, an instrument in the hand of God, don't look inward. Look to Jesus. He has fulfilled all righteousness for us already. We don't have to just make a list of things to do. We look to him and say, thank you, Christ, for doing all of these things that I can't do. He fulfilled it all. He was the perfect evangelist. He maintained complete, uninterrupted joy with the Father. He fulfills all your righteousness. You are not condemned for your failure to be a perfect servant. Christ is the perfect servant for you. This is the glory of the Christian faith. And at the same time, he is our perfect model to follow. As we behold his glory in the scriptures, we are changed from one degree of glory to another. And over time, we will actually become more like Christ. This is why we can leave here today with great hope that God will complete what he has started in us. Not because of our own power to change ourselves or because we go out and and fulfill this list of things that we need to do, but because of the power of the word of God and the Holy Spirit in our lives. He will complete what he has begun, the work that he has begun in you. Church, we can be sure that God will never leave us. He is always with us. And because we belong to Christ, we can be sure there is gospel purpose in all of our suffering, all of our trials, all of our hardship, and all of our persecution. Let's pray. God, I pray that Redeemer Church would be full of people with this eternal perspective, that we would lay our lives down, we would stop reaching and grasping for control, and we would see ourselves as instruments, as pens in the hand of our heavenly Father. Lord, we need this perspective I pray, God, that you would make it, that you would, that you would transform our hearts so that we, Father, would, that we would see any trial, any hardship, any anxiety that we experience as brought about and purposed by you for your glory and for our good. God, 
make us, help us have that eternal perspective. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.